This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Due to the graphic nature of this cult leader's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of child abuse that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Cults. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the life of Anne Hamilton Byrne and the most disturbing New Age group in Australia's history, the Great White Brotherhood of Initiates and Masters, a.k.a. The Family. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. Today, in part one of our two-part episode, we will focus on Hamilton Byrne herself, her life, her psyche, and how she turned from a troubled child into one of the most notorious female cult leaders in history. In part two, we'll broaden our focus from Anne Hamilton Byrne to the cult she founded, known as the Great White Brotherhood of Initiates and Masters, or simply the family. We'll learn about the different members of this cult, and the tactics Hamilton Byrne used to transform ordinary people from law-abiding professionals into abusive monsters. The Great White Brotherhood of Initiates and Masters was started by Anne Hamilton Byrne in 1963 and operated from its bases in Lake Eildon and the Dandenong Ranges outside of Melbourne, Australia until the early 1990s. The people who followed Anne Hamilton Byrne believed she was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ in female form, returned to lead humanity back from the brink after a coming apocalypse. She is one of only a few female cult leaders, but her influence was no less powerful than her male counterparts. By the mid-1970s, she had amassed a following of over 500 people. Anne was a master manipulator, beautiful and charismatic, with hypnotic blue eyes. She used psychedelic drugs to control her followers. But who would join an apocalyptic cult whose members indulged regularly in LSD? Well, not the first people you'd think of, or even people of apparent disrepute. Now, Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Now, please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. The members of Anne's cult were professionals who held sway in the legal, medical, judicial, and academic communities, areas largely respected in mainstream society. It was this respect which gave Anne her power, allowing her to use her followers to manipulate trusted societal institutions to amass wealth, property, and to persecute the true victims of the Great White Brotherhood, the 28 children who were forced into the cult through shady adoptions and various other underhanded tactics. LSD, doomsday prophecies, and a bizarre collection of children? Where should we begin our story? 
Since Anne Hamilton Byrne had a fascination with children later in life, perhaps the best place to start would be her childhood. What can you tell me about it? Well, on the whole, it was an impoverished, wretched background. Perhaps that's why Anne Hamilton ended up changing her name. She was born Evelyn Grace Victoria Edwards in 1921 in Sale, a city in the Gippsland region of the Australian state of Victoria. Sale was a small farming town with only one main street. Though the town was small, Evelyn's family was not. She was the eldest of seven children. That's interesting that she herself was part of a large family, given that she'd go on to a massive family of 28 children. Who were Evelyn's parents? Her father, Ralph Edwards, was born in 1892 in inner-city Melbourne, Australia. He lost his first wife in childbirth when he was fighting in World War I. Upon his return from the front in 1918, he married Evelyn's mother, who had recently moved to Melbourne from South London. Florence Hoyle believed she was a medium who could commune with the dead. But to the townspeople, she was just the lady who set fire to her hair in the street. And to psychiatrists, she was a paranoid schizophrenic. Vanessa, can you unpack that term? Mm, Sure thing. Schizophrenia is a serious mental illness that can be crippling without proper care. It's a kind of psychosis, which means that those suffering from it can find it difficult to distinguish fantasy from reality. The afflicted have hallucinations, delusions, hear voices that aren't there, and can even believe that someone else controls their thoughts. They may be paranoid of others and shut themselves off from the rest of the world. That fire episode sounds serious. Did she get any treatment? Well, Florence was first committed in 1941 when Evelyn was 20 years old. She spent almost half her life, 27 years, in mental hospitals. Royal Park, Mont Park, Ararat, and Sunbury. Unfortunately, none of these places were able to help. She would die committed. So Florence didn't get treatment until Evelyn was already an adult. That could have been nightmarish for her kids. Did Ralph act as a buffer between his wife and their kids when they were younger? No, he would come in and out of his family's lives. After Evelyn was born, he abandoned the family. In 1924, when Evelyn was three, he turned up in a fishing community on Victoria's western coast. On official documents, he's listed his religion as spiritualist, and his number of children, zero. This disappearing act became a regular occurrence with him vanishing every few years. With her father gone and her mother mentally unstable, records show that Evelyn's younger years were spent in the old Melbourne orphanage. That's a shame. You know, being institutionalized at a young age can have lasting psychological effects on a child. What kind of effects? Well, a study conducted in 1997 by James Sengendo and Janet Nambi found that orphan children were acutely aware of the change in their quality of life from when they had parents to when a parent got sick to when they were orphaned. These orphans were also at a higher risk for negative effects as a result of their abandonment. This means they're more likely to develop psychological disorders. This study found that foster parents and orphanage staff are, more often than not, unequipped to offer emotional support. As a result, many orphans suffer from severe depression and feel angry even after they're adopted. Are you saying that foster care isn't beneficial? I know tons of foster parents who don't view their children as adopted children, but just as their children. Like, they love them like their own. That's a good point. I was only saying that unless the foster parents are adoptees themselves, it can be difficult for them to get inside their child's head and provide the type of emotional support that child needs. However, there is science to support the benefits of foster care. Really? What kind of science? 
Well, when a child is neglected the way that Evelyn was, and that leads to her being orphaned, it can have physical effects on the brain. In terms of electrical activity, if you think of a healthy brain as a 100-watt bulb, orphans usually have a 40-watt. That's because a child's brain needs a reliable source of attention, affection, and stimulation. Children born into neglect lack these things, and so are slow to develop the gray and white matter in their brains. In other words, their brains were physically smaller. So what's the difference between gray and white matter? Well, gray matter includes regions of the brain involved in muscle control, sensory perception, emotions, decision-making, and self-control. Now, white matter is the insulation between the gray matter. It can transmit electrical signals far more quickly than gray matter, allowing different sections of the brain to communicate. If you think of the brain as a city, gray matter is like the big buildings where all the work gets done, and white matter is like the telephone lines, allowing quick transmissions from one building to another. So how does foster care factor into this? The study found that for kids in an orphanage, these problems persisted. However, when a child was adopted by foster parents, their brain's development increased. They made improvements in IQ, socio-emotional functioning, and language though they still fell short of the control group who had never been institutionalized. So it's possible for neglected kids to make a pretty good recovery if they're adopted by foster parents, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the earlier the better. The results improve drastically if the child is adopted before age two. Also, it's worth noting that while it was possible for the children to recover the missing white matter, their gray matter volume stayed low regardless of whether or not they were put into foster care. So the areas of Evelyn's brain that regulated her emotions and decision-making and self-control were underdeveloped. Do you think that had anything to do with her development into a sociopathic cult leader? It's possible, even probable. But given that most children of adoption go on to lead relatively normal lives, it can't be the whole picture. We have to continue with the story. The last documentation we have of Evelyn's childhood years comes in 1929, when she was enrolled in the Sunshine Primary School on Melbourne's west side at age eight. The only one who knows anything about those years is Evelyn herself, and she's not exactly giving out any interviews. When does the paper trail catch up with her? In 1941. She resurfaced with a new name, Anne Hamilton. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to The Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with The Weather Channel app. And now... Back to our story. When we left off, 20-year-old Evelyn Edwards had changed her name to Anne Hamilton. We'll never know the exact circumstances which led to her name change, but that change was symbolic of a greater one Anne was trying to make in her life. She'd grown up in a broken home, the child of neglect, and she wanted to make things normal. 
What that meant to Anne was being part of a family of her own. Since she was no longer a child, she did what adults do when they want to start a family. Records show that same year, she married a farmer named Lionel Harris, whom she'd met at a fruit farm in Sydney where she worked. Her desire to be with him was so strong that she convinced Lionel to desert the army for eight months during World War II to be with her, an early showcase of Anne's hypnotic power over people. Luckily, the military police only forced him back to the front lines of World War II rather than bringing him up on more serious charges. The fact that Anne changed her name indicates an attempt to solve an identity crisis by defining a new identity not only in action, but in name as well. First coined by psychologist Eric Erickson, an identity crisis means the failure to achieve ego identity during adolescence. Ego identity is the sense of identity that allows a person to experience a sense of who they are. I'm not sure that I get that totally. Can you explain it in a simpler way, like maybe with an example? Sure. Children who grow up without parents or with neglectful parents can suffer an identity crisis because parental role models are key to a child's development of a sense of self. A son sees his father spit watermelon seeds into the trash can, and he does it too. Then in his adolescent years, he spits watermelon seeds into the trash can, and his friends ask him why he does that. He replies that it's just what he does, not realizing how his parent has contributed to his own sense of self. So why did Anne try to reinvent herself by creating a family with Lionel? Well, children without role models are aware that they're missing out on something. They see other children have parents and recognize the absence of parental figures in their own lives. Orphans, whose parents aren't dead, but rather give them up for adoption, can become fixated on their absence, believing they need a family to define themselves. They often wonder why their parents gave them up, or fantasize about an idyllic family they used to have, which they believe is out there somewhere. Mm -hmm, I see. Now, Anne also got numerous cosmetic surgeries over the years. Could that be connected to her struggle to define herself? Absolutely. That's fascinating. But keeping in with what you're saying, the one thing that remained constant throughout Anne's life was her search for a family of her own. After the Second Great War, in the 1950s, Anne and Lionel were planning to start a family. Despite her turbulent upbringing, Anne was living a pretty normal life, and she and her husband were planning to adopt a child. Bernardo's Homes is a charitable organization that connects children with couples looking to adopt. They had a baby boy they'd set their hearts on. Anne was so close to forming the family she'd been searching for since childhood. And maybe she would have if disaster hadn't struck. On January 8, 1955, Lionel Harris was killed in a car crash in Bathurst, cutting short any plans the two of them had to adopt their son. Anne's life was shattered in that moment. Losing a spouse is one of the most psychologically taxing events a person may have to deal with in their life. It brings on feelings of depression, anxiety, anger, and exhaustion. It can even cause physical ailments such as digestive problems. In Anne's case, her grief over losing her husband was exacerbated by the failed adoption. It was almost like she'd lost a child as well. She was so close to realizing her vision of the perfect family which had eluded her since childhood. And then it was all taken away in one moment. Hmm. What does a person do after that kind of trauma? You mentioned the psychological and physical effects, but what do they do? Well, people have different ways of coping, but the unfairness of the entire situation can lead them to ponder some of the biggest questions available to us. What does it all mean? Is there a plan? You mentioned that Anne said she was the reincarnation of Christ. I wouldn't be surprised if this was the moment she turned to religion. That's pretty sharp. 
Anne had been taking yoga classes for some time before Lionel's death. Yoga was just coming into popularity shortly after the end of World War II, and she'd taken a liking to it. Now, with her husband gone, Anne found community amongst the other women participating in the fad. The exercise also helped get her in touch with her spiritual side. She said that yoga helped one achieve a physical peace, which she would later claim was the foundation of accessing the spiritual plane. Anne became a leader in the classes she attended and saw that people would follow her. For now, this community became a suitable substitute for a family. Did she take some kind of leadership role to make her position in that family official? Yeah. In 1960, when she was one year shy of 40, Anne became a tantric yoga instructor in Melbourne, Australia. The classes combined exercise with Anne's own brand of pseudo-Eastern philosophy. Eastern philosophy was the one thing Anne retained from her mother, who had used the teachings to supplement her work as a medium. She started teaching classes in the Gita School of Yoga after she met the studio's owner, Margaret Segesman, on a rainy day in Melbourne. Anne saw the woman struggling to pull some awnings down outside her school and helped her out. Anne introduced herself as a physiotherapist and nurse, and the two became friends almost immediately. I imagine Anne couldn't stop at just being a role model for these women. Did she take steps to make them a more permanent part of her family? Well, Anne's clientele would become some of her first initiates. The classes became very popular, attracting middle-aged women from the wealthier suburbs around Melbourne. Anne nurtured a reputation as a new age guru, available to those who needed spiritual guidance. So she was using elements of Eastern religions, Hinduism and Buddhism. What texts was she interested in? Siddhartha and the Bhagavad Gita were among her favorites. Now that is interesting. What are you zeroing in on? Well, I think we're seeing the origin of Anne's cult leader persona here. If we take a moment to discuss the content of Siddhartha and the Bhagavad Gita, I think you'll see what I mean. Siddhartha is the story of a young man of the same name who goes on a quest for enlightenment. In the beginning, he has all the trappings of wealth and lives amongst wealthy people who believe they know all there is to know because of their status. However, Siddhartha sees that the wealthy are detached from life and can only view it as a game. Unsatisfied with this frivolous existence, Siddhartha renounces his fortune and sets out on the road in search of a guru. To make a long story short, he finds the guru, learns to cleanse himself of the trappings of this world, and becomes enlightened. Well, that's a fascinating story. It's powerful stuff. Mm-hmm, indeed. And it was especially poignant to the middle-aged women who frequented Anne's classes. These women were going through midlife crises. Their kids had grown up, their husbands were having affairs, and it being the 60s, the recourse of divorce was practically unavailable, as it was very heavily discouraged by society. Like Siddhartha, they lacked purpose in their lives and went in search of a guru who would show them the path to a more meaningful existence. Mm, I see. The book helped Anne to see what these people were lacking in their lives. She stood on the shoulders of Eastern philosophers and used their work to win over these women. Mm -hmm, yes, she knew her audience and how to play them, but she perverted the original teachings to fit her own needs. For instance, she left out the part where the guru tells Siddhartha that he can't attain enlightenment by following a guru, but must instead walk the path himself. Now that's where I'm getting stuck. If these women were supposed to be Anne's new family, why did she feel the need to manipulate them? They really did respect her, right? Well, Anne was using these women as a surrogate for her family. They loved and respected her, but they weren't really her family. They could still leave her anytime they wanted to. That made Anne nervous. She was ultra paranoid about losing her family because her original family had abandoned her. So that's why she did what she did next. 
After she got a woman sufficiently under his spell, she'd convince her to leave her husband. The result of this was shame in society. At the time, being a divorcee was a scarlet letter that few women would come back from. Once these women divorced their husbands, the only family they had left was Anne's. She would control them for life. Now, what about the other book, the Bhagavad Gita? What's the parallel there? Well, the Bhagavad Gita is a Hindu text written around 400 BC and comprised of a dialogue between Krishna and a warrior named Arjuna. Krishna is the word of God in human form and tells Arjuna to live a life that establishes dharma in the world. Dharma is a concept in both Buddhist and Hindu religions, meaning the principle of cosmic order. It's likely that Anne related to Krishna, as she would liken herself to Jesus reincarnate, the Western equivalent of the God-man. So she believes she was the mouthpiece of God, sent to teach her followers to bring dharma to the world? It's difficult to know what she believed, but regardless, she convinced her followers of as much. The Bhagavad Gita also has an interesting bearing on the culture at the time. Really? What kind of cultural bearing could a Hindu text from before Christ have on the people of Australia in the 60s? Mm, Well, the 60s were a time when it seemed that Dharma had gone from the world and things needed to be put back in order. After the use of nuclear weapons during World War II, the Cold War began between Russia and the United States. Given the advent of nuclear power, this conflict not only affected those countries, but the entire world. The threat of nuclear annihilation was very real and felt globally. Mutually assured destruction. Exactly. People were understandably worried. And there was a consistent malaise during this period caused by the prevailing sentiment that the world could end at any moment. It made folks give way to a more mystical way of thinking. Oppenheimer quoted the Bhagavad Gita, didn't he? Mm, You're catching on, Greg. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the American theoretical physicist who developed the atomic bomb, famously referenced the text after the first nuclear test in 1945. He quoted Krishna, quote, I am become death, destroyer of worlds, end quote. This statement was broadcast the world over and once again brought light to the ancient text. Anne recognized how the people in her community were reflecting on man's terrifying capacity for destruction, and she exploited that fear for her own advantage. But what advantage could she really gain by converting all of these suburban housewives? Women didn't hold much power in the 60s. It's true. Anne couldn't set up a legitimate organization with only divorcees. And her family was lacking the members she desired the most, children. But Anne was past adoption at this point. Her talent for manipulating people had warped her perspective. The fact that this bad behavior was rewarded caused her to repeat it. And repeat it she did in her quest for children of her own. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, let's continue the story. Children couldn't just be convinced to join Anne's family. It's not up to them. And there are numerous societal bulwarks in place to make sure that children aren't kidnapped or otherwise separated from their parents. Anne was aware of that. That's why she set out to build her small family of yoga moms into a full-fledged organization, one with reach in the judicial, legal, academic, and medical communities, with legitimacy so no one looking at her perfect family would bat an eye. In 1962, Anne set her sights on Dr. Rainer Johnson. Dr. Johnson was a highly respected physicist and author. Beyond being a hugely respected scientist, he was also a highly praised academic, the master of Queen's College at the University of Melbourne. His social circle included wealthy and important people, such as the founders of the Liberal Party and the owners of Ansett Airline. 
With his support, she could legitimize her cult. I see. Anne's plan was to recruit this reputable man to be her follower, to gain influence on his wealthy friends, giving her the power to acquire children through shady channels. And once she had the children, anyone potentially suspicious of her large family would see that her organization was made up of respected professionals. They wouldn't see it as a cult. Exactly. But how in the world did she convince a theoretical physicist to become her supplicant? Surely he should have known better. Well, that's going to be a running theme in this cult. The smartest, most highly respected people can be just as gullible as your everyday Joe. Sometimes we idolize status too much. Mm, That's right. Societal status doesn't always speak to one's true aptitude. One can be extremely highly educated and yet have a psychological naivete. In fact, someone's education can bolster their naivete. If a person believes they are smart and has societal credentials to prove it, they may be more susceptible to cultic brainwashing. After all, if you believe it's impossible for you to be fooled, that might be because you're playing the fool. So what happened next? How did she use Dr. Johnson? Well, Dr. Rainer Johnson was very, very gullible and checked up on him for a few weeks. She had friends at Queens College feeding her information about him. She also slept with his gardener to gain inside information about the goings-on inside his house as well as his relationship with his wife. She gathered this information to pretend she was clairvoyant. Three days before Christmas 1962, on a Saturday night, Dr. Johnson was sitting in his study when he heard the doorbell ring. On what he referred to in his diary as a day of destiny, he answered that doorbell and was met by Anne, whom he judged to be 10 years younger than she actually was. Anne addressed the 61-year-old saying, I don't think you know me, but I know you well. My name is Anne. She did her practice ploy, dazzling him with her insights into his life. She said she knew he was going to India with his wife and that his wife was going to get sick over there. Now, the creepy thing is Dr. Johnson and his wife did go to India and his wife did get sick with dysentery. From that moment, Rayner believed fully that Anne was the Messiah and would be her puppet. What was their relationship like from that point? Johnson was enamored with Anne. She lured him into sympathizing with her by telling him about her tragic past, often embellishing the details. She told him about her first husband's tragic death and intimated that she had lost three children and contemplated suicide during the marriage, though all this was false. She told Johnson that God had a divine plan and that he was part of it. She wanted to give him what she already had, eternal life, and a perspective outside the constraints of physical being. What does that mean? Well, she said she'd traveled through the cosmos and held court with the enlightened ones. In her own words, once you have a glimpse of these superior beings just with your old eyes, it will completely change your life. You could look at them for years and years and not know them. And then all of a sudden through your training, you see them. You find that the supreme ruler, God, has manifested and given enlightenment and divine wisdom for all creatures. And Dr. Johnson was on board with this? It wasn't just the future telling that Anne had done which convinced him. He was already susceptible because of where he was in his life. A lifelong physicist, in the twilight of his career, Dr. Johnson started to become interested in metaphysics. You mean the study of things that exist beyond earthly experience? I can see that because in the 60s, metaphysics was considered to be scientific. Tests were being conducted, and the data scientists have since collected on the subject, disproving a lot of metaphysical claims, did not yet exist. 
Rayner sincerely thought he had come into contact with a woman who could provide evidence of experience beyond the physical plane. Anne offered Rayner more evidence to support her claims in May of 1963, when Anne performed her first miracle. Fran Parker, one of Anne's yoga moms, rolled her car on the outskirts of Melbourne. During the accident, she fractured her skull, and doctors told her the eye wound she sustained might leave her partially blind. In Dr. Johnson's words, Anne immediately organized spiritual help. Fran left the hospital a week later much earlier than expected. She had perfect vision and was otherwise in good shape. Johnson told his wife that the experience convinced him that Anne was Christ reincarnate. He began referring professional colleagues to Anne, who were similarly impressed. In turn, these professionals would gather their friends, also respected professionals, and refer them to Anne, who was a master at convincing them of her powers. And so it was that Anne's numbers grew exponentially through the remainder of the 1960s. Finally, in 1968, she had amassed enough power to begin obtaining her true goal, a huge family of children. I know these people must have had an influence, but did they really have enough to steal children? And how did they do it? Did they kill the mothers? Well, these are fascinating questions, Vanessa, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Next time, we'll discuss the methods Anne used to kidnap her children, the culture within the cult, how Anne treated her 28 children once she had them, and how it all came crashing down. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Tuesday as we continue delving into the twisted psychology behind Anne Hamilton Burns' family. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, production assistance by Joel Stein, Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by John Gray and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 